Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Gene expression, psychosocial and cultural genomics, a healing process that connects the mind-body to emotional and physical healing is our topic. Our guest is Dr. Ernest Rossi, a practicing psychologist, hypnotherapist, and expert in dreams. Dr. Rossi describes how we humans can activate a specific gene within us to advance our abilities or recover from an injury. He suffered a major stroke in the early 2000s that severely impaired his speech and movement. Dr. Rossi managed his own recovery using psychosocial and cultural genomics. His website is ernestrossi.com. He and I visited at the 11th Milton Erickson Psychotherapy Congress in Phoenix, Arizona in December 2011. We began when I turned on the recorder and asked Dr. Rossi to explain how gene expression works. It's a fascinating new concept. You know, genetics has been in existence for about 200 years since Gregor Mendel uh, founded the field. But Gregor Mendel was interested in genes as a unit of heredity. So most science writers are really dealing with that ancient original concept of genetics as heredity going from one generation to another. The popular imagination says that genes are the units of heredity. They are fixed traits. Just within the past generation, we've learned a new function of genes. There are some genes called activity-dependent genes. These genes only turn on when there's certain activities activities in the environment, like you're asking me questions, that will start turning on gene expression so I can make the proteins to make the neurotransmitters, make the hormones so that I can give you an appropriate response. Activity-dependent genes would include a wide range of behavior from listening to music to being physically or emotionally abused. Exactly. It could be positive or negative. And what we've just learned is that thoughts turn on RNA, that's ribonucleic acid, and that ribonucleic acid at the cellular level travels to the nucleus of the cell where the chromosomes and the genes are and tells the gene to turn on or turn off. For any observable behavior, there are probably hundreds, thousands of genes that are in a coordinated activity, families of genes. And all these genes have individual variations. Darwin says that random variation and natural selection are the two dynamics that make evolution work. At the molecular level, the genetic level, there's always constant changes that are taking place just as a function of temperature, of pressure. Each gene has many forms. Theoretically, we have about 20, 25,000 genes, but these genes are made up of long, complicated DNA molecules. 
it's almost like a little step ladder. Each step of the ladder is a base, and it's a characteristic that together makes up the genes. Well, in Darwinian evolution, often those letters are mixed up, and each mix-up can give a different flavor to how the gene expresses itself. So if you have 25,000 genes, but each of those genes could have hundreds of different letters, you see it's 25 times hundreds, actually millions, yes, variations of different genes. Different people will respond to the same stimulus in different ways because they've all got different variations of their genes. There's no two people. Even identical twins will have spontaneous variations happening every day. I'd like to see if we could put this in two separate categories. Separate categories. One is the category of learning language. Yes. When the genes are, that we have are particularly susceptible to being turned on at a young age to learn multiple languages. Yes. Versus turning on a gene to get out of an emotional crisis. Yes. That may not be age limited as much as language. Right. Can you address those differences? Stress is something that we all experience when we're, we experience a trauma, a great surprise. And that stress can turn on and turn off different sets of genes. So that if your stress is continuous, for example, it can actually turn off the genes that make the proteins that make a part of the brain called the hippocampus learn. The hippocampus will actually shrink with continuous stress, and that person who has a shrunken hippocampus will learn his, find it very difficult to learn a new thing like language or a musical instrument. A lot is related to how you're experiencing life, your lifestyle, so to speak. Lifestyle, whether you have a relaxed life or say a high pressure life, can determine which hormones are flowing through your system, whether these hormones support brain growth, trans neurotransmitters that increase the efficacy of your synaptic connections and increase your IQ. The general idea is try to live a good life, a life where you have relaxation at several times throughout the day. We now know, for example, every hour and a half or two, there's a complete cycle from mind, cognition, behavior, communicating to genes and turning on certain genes and turning off certain genes. So if a complete cycle takes place every two hours, then in a typical 24-hour period, you experience 12 creative periods. Most people don't even think of themselves as creative, but the mind-body is continually working on problems in the background. This is what the so-called unconscious is. Now the unconscious isn't just a uh, metaphor. Now we know the unconscious is this process of stimuli coming in from the outside world. If they're interesting and they may turn on gene expression and give rise to new thoughts, new creative thoughts. 
this is what we call brain plasticity. The brain actually grows, builds new neural networks, and these new neural networks are the organic structure of what new levels of consciousness actually are. Putting this into a Darwinian perspective, now we're in the uh, beginning of the second decade of the 21st century on the Gregorian yeah. calendar, the Christian calendar. But if we go back way before the Christian calendar, go back 10,000 years, genetically we would be able to procreate with a person uh, from that era, getting the time yes. together. Yeah. But you talk about stress. At that time, a life was not necessarily as easy as it is yes, now. Yes, much more hazardous of, than today. And, and in terms of potable water, in terms of shelter, in terms of public health. Much more difficult. The stress level, in my assumption, is that it was much greater yes. at that time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the evolutionary process that has occurred, even going back more than 10,000 years, maybe oh, to 70,000 when we first walked out of hey, Africa. How about going back 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang? That's fine, let's go there. Okay, let's go there. Okay, at that point, this is the quantum universe. Uh, what's characteristic of the quantum universe is even before matter is created in the emptiness of cosmic space, the so-called cosmic vacuum. Even in a vacuum, quantum particles are spontaneously popping into existence and popping out. That's the nature of the quantum universe. Okay, gradually come forward in time to 4.7 billion years ago. At that time, temperatures began settling down and we can imagine a primitive Earth. What happened around 4.7 billion years ago was what we call RNA world. The world was made of the so-called ribonucleic acid molecule, and that was a very active kind of a molecule. We might almost say it was a nervous molecule. A lightning bolt hits a part of the ocean at one point, and the RNA will immediately transmit that electrical energy around the globe in chaotic various directions. That's one part of how life became what it is. But according to Darwinian evolutionary theory, Random mutations are always taking place. And one day, we believe it's around five billion years ago, the RNA got a mutation that changed it to DNA. DNA means there's two oxygen molecules instead of nitrogen and oxygen of the RNA. The behavior of the DNA molecules profoundly different than that of the nervous RNA. DNA is naturally more stable. So once it gets a certain formation, it can transmit itself when it replicates from generation to generation. When cells finally formed, they were a combination of DNA genes as we now know them that can transmit their characteristics from one generation to another. They also had 
a surrounding tire, you might say, of RNA. Now remember, the RNA was a very nervous, it was specialist in transmitting energy and molecular codes. The RNA became the signaling system from the outside world into the nucleus to the DNA. So we now have the scenario, RNA is taking signals from the outside world, transmitting it to the DNA. It changes the expression of the DNA. So the DNA makes different proteins that lead to different nerves, different cell types. So now these genes are activity dependent, dependent upon the activities of the outside world are transmitted through the RNA to the DNA, and the DNA, in effect, tries to make proteins and structures that are going to adapt in a creative way to the changing circumstances of the outside world. Philosophers call this the uh, mind-body problem. How can something as insubstantial as mind influence the body? For example, in psychosomatic medicine, you experience psychological traumas. It's only on a mental level, and yet you start getting very real symptoms in your physical body. This is how it's done. The mental stimuli will turn on certain genes, activity-dependent gene expression, the biologist calls it, and if they're not adaptive, if they're not giving a true signal, and if the genes do not know how to adapt, then we start getting malformations. In addition to that, as you go from a young child that learns very well because its genes are fresh and new and they don't have malformations, as we progress in age, we start experiencing cellular oxidation. What's that supposed to mean? Before you answer that question, I'd like to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Dr. Ernest Rossi, who is the keynote speaker at the 11th International Congress on Ericksonian Approaches to Psychotherapy. This interview was recorded in Phoenix, Arizona on December 11th, 2011. This is Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Rossi, the question is gene expression and turning it on later in life after there is cellular oxidation. Cellular oxidation means that your genes are burning up. You know, life is a process of combustion. We put together phosphorus and certain molecules with oxygen, and we really combust, we burn. And in that process of burning, that's how we get energy. Chemists calls it ATP, adenosine triphosphate. It's the chemical that releases energy for all your body activities. However, as we get older, more and more of the gene structures start wearing away, all those steps in the ladder of the helix that makes up our life code. As they wear away, life becomes more precarious because the genes don't function with efficiency. So just this moment, a moment ago, I forgot within a couple seconds what I was talking about. You have to remind me. I'm a guy who's 78 years old. Most people my age start complaining about their lack of memory. 
what's that about? Cellular oxidation. 78 years of burning up, making the energy to drive my body, but at the same time, an unfortunate side effect, burning up some of the delicate gene structures so that they're no longer efficient in creating memory and learning. I'd like to ask a little more about you. About me? Yes. I should be a subject of interest to Curious Radio? Uh, I'm a curious guy. I'd like okay. to ask about, about you, the man behind the ideas. Okay. And how you've been able to learn the theories that you're talking about to assist yourself in changing from what I understand is commonly called a stroke that you had a number of years ago. My goodness. But I can tell you an interesting story. Uh, when I had my stroke, I was like um, my late 60s. One manifestation of a stroke was my speech was slurred. Even now, if you listen to my speech carefully, you'll notice I have little hesitancies. That's still part of stroke behavior. But how did I recover from my stroke? Well, all cells of the body, tissues of the body, even brain tissues, has what we call stem cells, the very same stem cells that are so much political controversy. Should we use these stem cells? And, and those are the cells that allow a certain organ to reproduce. Yes as opposed to being skin versus heart muscle versus right. eye muscle. When I had a stroke, that meant that certain brain cells died because a blood vessel broke accidentally and it essentially drowned some of the cells, my brain tissue. And as those normal, good, healthy neurons died, their last act was to send out a bevy of molecular signals into the surrounding tissues. These were molecular messengers telling stem cells that were distributed randomly throughout my brain, hey, stem cells, turn on your gene expression and start reproducing me. Start reproducing my functions. So you can imagine a conversation happening between a dying cell and the stem cells, which are like kind of embryonic. They're like little babies. They don't have a function yet. They have only one function. When they receive signals that a legitimate mature brain cell is dying, and the message coming from that dying cell is, Replace me, replace me, I'm dying, I'm dying. <laughs> How does it replace the dying cell? The stem cells has to turn on its genes to start making the proteins that are gonna replicate. If it's a brain cell that dies, it has to become a brain cell. If you have a heart attack and it's a heart cell that dies, the message coming from the injured heart cells is replace me and now the message is to make another heart cell meaning another pattern of genes has to turn on that's activity dependent gene expression every tissue every organ of the body expresses different sets of genes families of genes and it's the difference in the proteins they produce that give identity to a brain cell or a heart cell. 
Were you able to make any conscious effort to turn on these cells in you? Yes and no. Let me tell you what we know about the process. I had a series of dreams. You know, I'm a specialist in dreams. One of my first books I ever published back in 72 was on dreams and the growth of personality. Now it's in its third edition. But what that book was all about was when we experienced something novel, new, or surprising in the outside world, that new impulse turns on our hippocampus, it learns it, and then when we go to sleep, the hippocampus has a dialogue, a talk, with the cortex of our brain, our consciousness. When we first go to sleep, we go deeply into deep wave sleep. What is deep wave sleep? Well, it's the cortex sending, starting a dialogue with the hippocampus. The cortex says, hey, anything new happened in the world for your experience? that I should know about because if something new happened, I want to make new proteins, I want to make new neural networks to encode this new change in your environment. So this is how the brain continually updates itself. Well, we're talking about me, my stroke, and did I do anything to consciously help myself with conscious suggestions to replace the dying cells. I said yes and no. I'll tell you the very first dream I had the day I had a stroke. I dream at night I'm driving a car over a dangerous overpass and I suddenly want to put on the brakes but I can't because I, my right leg is somehow paralyzed. Well, that was in fact a case. Not only was my speech slurred, but my right side was partially paralyzed. So the dream was starting to work on this new and novel, and in this case, tragic body condition. And I suddenly go lucid in my dream. I suddenly realize that I'm dreaming. And if I watch, it might show me a picture of my own brain and I can see where my stroke is. Well, to make a long story short, as it comes closer, I see it's a wire mesh of my own head going around in a circular pattern such that, hey, if I really look at it carefully, I can tell what part of my brain the stroke is in and be able to guide myself. Well, with that exciting thought, it woke me up and I say, oh, shucks, I just missed it. The dream ended before I could find where the stroke location was. With that came tears of thankfulness. This dream had profound meaning to me. Even though I'm hampered, I'm struggling with a stroke, injured brain, something is working correctly. So I knew immediately my highest functions, self-reflection, was still struggling and still capable of operating. And that gave me the sense of hope Oh, even though my arms paralyzed, my legs paralyzed, I, my speech is slurred, something in me is reporting my condition accurately. And that gave me the courage when I you know, woke up. Yes, I'm going to practice exercises of, uh, my wife actually bought me a piano. I never played a piano before. By relearning hand-eye coordination, I was starting to exercise my brain 
to turn on the genes that would make the proteins that would repair the dying stroke hurt cells. So now consciousness comes in and even my uh, mental rehabilitation workers, they would give me little tasks of putting one little metal piece on another and it was very difficult to do because my hand is partially paralyzed. I would laugh and mental rehabilitation workers would say, geez, you're really surprising. Most patients are depressed when they see their functioning is so primitive. And I said, if I can do this, I know it's gonna turn on my genes and it's gonna reconstruct my brain. And they didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, you see, I wrote this book. And just before I had the stroke, I had sent this manuscript of the psychobiology of gene expression. And I said, uh, someday the book is now yet, but you read about it. And this I know, I love these exercises because I know they're giving me the right exercise that's gonna turn on my genes, that's gonna make new repairs on my brain. So naturally I love it. And the therapists were all like, well, uh, yes, okay, uh, Dr. Rossi, uh, if that's what you're doing, uh, yes, you're absolutely right, you just, and I said, you don't believe me, you guys. You haven't read my book. We're going to read it, Dr. Rossi. You just keep doing what you're doing. My own theory, I use to help myself. That, Barry, is the essence of my message today. And it seems like you were successful watching you speak in front of a group of 500 people, talking with you now, watching you move your arms and yes. walk at other times. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful world. I'll never complain again. <laughs> well, Dr. Ernest Rossi, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious here in Phoenix, Arizona. It's truly been a pleasure. And before we close, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. And mm -hmm. the first one is, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment? And you may just have done that, that changed your life. Right. It was that moment in my dream when I recognized, aha, I'm got a stroke, my brain is damaged, but higher functions are still trying to operate and they're succeeding. I'm going to pursue these exercises. That was my big aha. And I think that's why I didn't get depressed. Simple exercise can actually help us return on gene expression to recover rehabilitation. And it appears that your living example if you can do it, there's no reason why somebody else can. Absolutely not. So tell me, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Continue this marvelous study. I'm a psychotherapist, so I can work with people who had stroke and a lot of disability. But even more than that, I've been uh, inspired to do research on gene expression. Even something as simple as exercise can be a marvelous prescription for a lot of people who have just psychological problems because psychological problems can be rehabilitated by turning on gene expression simply through physical exercise as well as mental exercise. And finally, Dr. Ernest Rossi, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, uh, I tell you what, make it simple. You got a computer, a browser, something like Google. Just put in uh, Ernest Rossi, my 
home page and there you'll see many of the 36 books that I've written or edited. You make your own choice depending upon what you need. Dr. Ernest Rossi, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Okay, you're an inspiration yourself, Barry, your smiling face. Dr. Ernest Rossi is a practicing psychologist, psychotherapist, and hypnotherapist who lives on the central coast of California. The book he recommends would be your choice of the 36 books he has authored or edited. For more information about his books and his work, you may visit his website, ErnestRossi.com. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may reach us by email, curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.